Welcome to the Peace Wanted podcast. Today I'm having a lovely conversation with Anna Mativa and Anna has worked all across the world in places where protecting civilians is crucial and I'm really pleased that you can come and join us today and help us think a bit more about what that happens with non-violent and unarmed protection and we work together in Nonviolent Peace Force but I know that your ideas and work stretch all over the place and thank you for coming and I really want to start off by thinking why do you think we need to think or talk more about protecting civilians? Well, we have to talk about protecting civilians, but we also need to talk about peace. And because it is all not just emergent humanitarian emergency, because you can say that protecting civilians in natural disasters. Now we have, for example, floods in DRC. Civilians do suffer and they do need protection, but we are talking about protecting civilians in condition of armed conflict and not uh, because they are affected by forces of nature. So we are dealing with people who are waging a war or having war waged on them. So we are talking about, uh, I think, three things. Uh, One is that we're dealing with kind of conscious actors who know what they are doing and whether they can be reasoned with or to protect civilians. The other thing uh, that we're talking about is observing rules of war. Uh, War is a barbaric business, but it's also regulated by international norms. Many of them are actually quite Asian. Yeah, they have not been in bed recently. So to what extent they and these values and these norms are very much to do with protecting civilians. The third thing is that existing mechanisms of protecting civilians often are very ineffective. They are not really geared for the modern warfare where you have large-scale weapons quite a lot of time they are not precision weapons or whatever the parties claim that they are yeah in reality it's kind of seldom the case uh, civilians are very often victims international organizations certainly it's their mandate they do what they can on but they are also quite often are constrained by their own security rules and regulations which make them very act in a way that they are fairly remote from where civilians actually are. There's a gap there that's not yet being filled. The gap has always been there. Certainly an ideal war, if you have an ideal war. This war between armies, century-old warfare, that was major battles would determine the outcome of a war. There is very little distinction between combatants and non-combatants. The world in 21st century is more fluid and gaps appeared where they need to be filled, but also we are all the time catching up. And have you seen that in different places where you've worked? This very clear gap of... Civilians are harmed in every war. They are harmed in different ways. For example, times it's not very clear how you draw a line between combatants and non-combatants. Ah, so who is a civilian is yet to be discussed. I'll give you a recent example of a conflict in Myanmar. Of course, you know, the military government of Myanmar does not say that there is even any conflict. They are saying that there are just you know, some criminal elements or some die-hard rebels or doing nasty bits or terrorists and doing nasty bits and pieces. But yeah. in reality, uh, there are masses of people who are, have been trying to 
protest peacefully, get them anywhere. They started to be more and more suppressed. Certainly, they retaliate, and quite often times, these people are not combatants. Most of them have some kind of professional. Many of them are students. They kind of get dragged into also committing violence. So the law doesn't cover people who are both civilian and combatant? Yes, certainly. And also, if you're looking at now the conflict in Ukraine, also the uh, line between civilian and non-civilian action is quite often blurred. That is interesting. Quite a lot of this, you know, civil society, community groups, they are not only helping civilians get them out of danger and helping with evacuations and rescue missions, but they're also actively helping troops because they see that as something yeah. which is absolutely valid pursuit. And from their point of view, they do not make a distinction in which group needs to be helped. But in the bigger scope of humanitarian work, you can just say that it makes humanitarian workers a legitimate target. Oh, so actually the, the the whole rules of war are very difficult to apply. Yes, yeah. For example, International Committee of Red Cross and Red Crest, they are very, very strict. They are just doing humanitarian work. They never go with troops, certain things which they do not do and do not talk about. That's why they have access. Because they're so strict. They do not compromise their humanitarian one single bit. That's why they, for example, are capable of accessing places. And is that why you think we should make sure we always talk about peace when we talk about protection? Because we have yeah. to deal with the, all of those complications. But also there is supposed to be some kind of end goal in mind. Peace. Yeah. Because if you are doing humanitarian protection work for a de- decade and you are doing the same thing and you do help individuals and communities, nothing changes. Well, uh, maybe you need to rethink the bigger picture. How you arrive from uh, immediate protection work. Who do you think is talking about peace and protection? Well, I don't know. In nonviolent peace force does talk about protection and peace, but certainly talks mostly about local peace. Uh, And peace which is kind of tangible, which can be built within communities and local authorities and uh, sort of, um, but it is being challenged by large scale conventional armed violence. Big armed violence always seems to arrive to destroy anything that's been achieved. Yes, well, if we're looking now at Sudan, yeah, so you have two militaries within one state, now very much armed uh, with heavy weapons, capable of inflicting great deal of damage on civilians as a part of the power struggle. There is also maybe some kind of missing connection here uh, because if we are looking at places like um, Sudan, yeah, we can also make this argument um, about Ukraine, how these people managed to get so, so much armed. So actually we have to link it to the whole arms trade industry and, and yeah. weapons yeah. industry as well. Yes, so for, and, uh, yeah, when it is responsible, 
to send weapons, what is the downside, when uh, sending weapons can be a provocative move, for example, talking about Sudan. If these two militaries didn't have that kind of heavy artillery and aviation, we would be seeing much more kind of localized. It begs the question how the um, General Hermeti managed to get himself and his forces so heavily armed. So there is, uh, there are people who are dealing with arms trade and uh, yeah, weapons controls and uh, like safer world, uh, small arms okay. survey. Yeah. People are doing it maybe less now. But yeah, that is kind of, it's also a side protection, but we maybe are not making this linkage as um, we could. So it'd be really interesting to hear from the people who try to stop the weapons trade about how they think about those weapons being used on civilians rather than just an economic problem? Certainly, uh, a, a lot of heavy weapons and, and lots of weapons generally is not good news for civilian protection. So we have to think about all of the, the ways in which civilians are going to be harmed in that process as part of thinking about protection rather than just thinking of it as what happens tomorrow to keep people safe. I mean, women seem to play an important part in, in protecting civilians. Some societies are quite uh, traditional. Mm-hmm. Women have quite entrenched gender roles. And, but they also can use their authority, their respect, um, you know, their mothers or grandmothers. So they are kind of reverted. In other contexts, there's far more gender equality. Yeah, women fight. Yeah, uh, women um, drive tanks. Women become um, sniper shooters. Yeah, many women play a role of uh, informers, spies, uh, intelligence gathering. Uh, it's also it's a very much of a women's domain. Uh, there are women in, in the speakers. So, so yes, there are women as men can take all sorts of roles in conflicts, not not only as victims and not only as kind of community um, conflict mitigation mechanism can be also quite active uh, participants. But it, it, it depends on the social fabric of society. Uh. It, yeah, in some places like then NP works in uh, South Sudan, uh, women's protection teams uh, work well. Uh, in uh, Iraq, uh, also working with the women. Well, I think one thing that really interests me is the way in which um, right, civilians protecting civilians is such a cultural activity as well. Yeah, you can say, well, in some societies, there is respect for elders. Even people do not agree with elders. Maybe they still feel that they cannot contradict it overtly. That can be used for peace intervention. The role of elders in some societies is also in crisis. Yeah, they might already, they already start saying, well, okay, we actually know better. I wonder if you have an idea of how how this will develop do you see a way in which um like more people talking about it or more people trained or integrating somewhere how's it going to get better i think the only way it is going to get better if we can have an open and honest conversation about peace building and uh, civilian protection and, and not be engulfed an illusion that that we can do everything that that 30 years of kind of active peace building by professional peace building organizations what what can and cannot be done 
Yeah, and also I think we need to learn uh, some kind of lessons of uh, what is the relationship between big conflict with geopolitical states and the kind of uh, interventions uh, which we're talking about. So the really local ones? Local, but it may be also um, local authorities, maybe um, local security provide, not, not necessarily like purely community-based, but local infrastructure, but which are really dealing with the internal, local, quite often sub-national level, maybe sometimes national level. But when you have big geopolitical competition, you know, foreign troops present, you know, engaged, are, are they supposed to be engaged in it? Are they taken as a party to conflict? Uh, quite, sometimes they are, everybody knows that they are there, but they, sometimes they do not say that they are there. That dimension is something which put outside the bracket. I think that if we want to see something going forward, okay. we need to have a little bit more than exchange of best practices and showcases and saying, you know, how wonderful things are, but having a bit more kind of honest conversations about what can and can be done and which obstacles we can and cannot tackle or what else is needed, where you need to have broader coalitions for the partnerships between different sectors yeah we need to look at geopolitics however uncomfortable it is i think that's probably something we would be if that can happen yeah that would be incredibly useful it would be amazing i think that's a really really important well, place to finish but also a really important thing to think about that even if we know how one bit of it works there's still a whole set of other global pressures, regional things um, that we haven't yet integrated into thinking about how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for all of that. That was so interesting and really helpful. And you've left us with some great big questions that we can go on and explore. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Come back soon.